Hello there, just popping into this side of the episode to tell you that I recorded this chat with Chris Barth last year when we were doing the Sunday Project together. That shall just help iron out any kinks in the timeline that we refer to. Enjoy the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, check it out. You've got to start somewhere. The podcast that takes you behind the scenes of show business to prove there's no such thing as an overnight success. With your host, Rachel Corbett. Welcome to the show. Today I'm chatting with somebody I only recently met and started working with, but she has quickly become one of my fave humans. It is journalist Chris Barth. Thank you, Rachel Corbett. <laughs> it's lovely to hear that. You have just been delightful to work with. We've been working on the Sunday Project together and it is interesting when you have seen somebody on telly and in the periphery of the industry that you work in, but you've never actually come across them and you just don't know what they're going to be like to work with. And then you have just been delightful from day one. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, the thing that amazed me about working on the Sunday project was mm. was the team with you and Tommy and Hamish and how wonderful everybody was. Yeah. It, it is I can honestly say from personal experience, rare to have four on-camera people <laughs> sitting at a desk who are fabulous. Yeah, definitely. It has. It makes such a difference when you're working, particularly on a show where you need to have a bit of personality, a bit of chat. You know, that chemistry can really make or break. And I've, I have don't know about you, but I've certainly worked on some shows in the past where I'm like... Oh, this is some heavy lifting. <laughs> like this is, I'm really working here, but it's been delightful. So this this show is all about how you got into the business. And before we hit the record button, you were saying that it was a, an accident. So I'm excited to get to that. But you you grew up in the western suburbs when you were little. You were in Auburn, yeah. When you grew no, up, no, that's a bit of. A, I think that's one of the research misnomers. I was born in Auburn District Hospital. Right. My granny lived in Auburn, but I actually grew up in South Wentworthville. So in the 60s, mum and dad did the buy a block of land thing, build a double front brick veneer house on it. And, yeah. you know, in those days there were still market gardens close by. So it sort of south went with Phil and then I think got poshed up and got called Greystains. So, right. yeah. But it was more south Wendy than anywhere else. W- what did you want to be when you grew up, when you were little out there? So I was busting to be a ballet dancer and I had all the enthusiasm and none of the ability, unfortunately. <laughs> Are you just being humble? Were you bad or were you just not? I was okay. Right. I was never going to be great. Yeah. <laughs> Put it this way. My dance teacher used to say she had to break my hips and start again. <gasps> That's not a good thing. Dance teachers <laughs> are brutal. No, but ballet's brutal. It is a brutal sport. I mean, you have to have... Genetically, you have to be great mm. and then you have to have this performance thing. And so pretty much from the waist up, I was okay because I was all over the performance thing. Mm. But from the waist down, technically there's this thing called turnout that you need to be a great dancer. None of that. I had to work at flexibility. I wasn't naturally flexible and I had flat feet. Not great right. for a dancer. Did you have those horrible thing feet of, uh, that a ballet dancer has when they end up in point shoes a lot? Did you Ballet I, dancer's feet frightened me. I had, a, <laughs> I had a brief sojourn with point shoes because I didn't – that only happens sort of if you really pursue dance. And right. they, usually a good teacher won't let you into point shoes until you're at least sort of 12. So I wasn't allowed to touch point shoes till I was 12 and I was so excited when I got my first pair until I realised how much pain, <laughs> pain. was involved. And I have, I've still got calluses. Even though I didn't do it for very long, I've still got calluses on my feet from sort of the very brief sojourn. It would have only been a few years. And then not every class was in point shoes. You have a special point class. And you look at people who do it every day, like people in the Australian Ballet. I've recently done some work with them. 
And I just look at them in awe and wonder how their feet survive. I mean, they toughen up, obviously. The skin mm. on your feet toughens up over the years. But I've still got – but I, I wear those calluses with pride on my yeah. feet. They're, they're going to be ugly feet anyway, so who cares? <laughs> at least I can say once was a ballet dancer, you know. What, what age were you – were you sort of single-minded in your focus in your dreams of ballet until you realised it wasn't going to happen? Is that the only sort of dream you had for something post-school? No, I think I wanted to be a paleontologist as well. I was pretty fixated with dinosaurs. Oh, my God. I was exactly the same. What, ballet and paleontology? No, 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 no ballet. I was absolutely, there was no part of me that was ever going to do ballet. I had no grace nor style when I was a kid. But paleontology, I was exact, I was obsessed with dinosaurs. Yeah, me too. I still remember the book that my uncle gave me when I was six years old and I've still got it and it was just my favourite book of all time and it was just about dinosaurs. How old were you when that was the, the dream? Oh, probably about... Six, but the obsession continued sort of and, and then there were sort of vague dreams of maybe, maybe archaeology by the yeah, time I got sort of exactly to senior school I'm going mm, archaeology paleontology <laughs> but my parents are going get a real job you know <laughs> yeah. so did your parents want you to go to uni study get a decent job that kind of thing well the interesting thing is my no one in my family for five generations had ever been to university right. so my family was a good solid working class family university wasn't really an option and the, the interesting things the way that we all learned about that as an option was probably through my the girls that I danced with because it was a dance school in Parramatta and I got to meet people from a different walk of life to mm-hmm. me and and they were all talking about going to university and I had teachers at school that said to me you really should go to university my mother was actually quite bright at school but didn't have the opportunity she had to leave school when she was 14 she was one of four. Her dad was a truck driver. He died when she was eight. So she had to go out to work to support the family. And mum always felt a bit robbed, I think, because she really wanted to be a teacher and go to teacher's college. Mm. You know, that was her dream back then. So I think mum had a vague idea of what university would be. But I think their dream, and also because various teachers at school had said, she's really bright, you should send her to university. I think they kind of thought that that was the path that I should go on. Meanwhile, I was sitting there going, I really just want to be a ballet dancer. <laughs> Just hanging on to the dream. I I recently did this gig with the Australian Ballet and I'm on stage at this outdoor, fantastic outdoor event they do at Penrith every year and I'm standing there and the whole company's behind me and they've just done this brilliant performance and I'm standing there, totally self-serving, I know, going, (laughs) finally on stage with a ballet company. It's only taken 35 years but I'm on stage with a ballet company. I was the fat lady at the front with the microphone but still I was so excited. It counts, it counts. So when you did go to university, I was reading you you studied psychology, German and legal institutions. Is that right? Um, I, was, I, I enrolled in, in what was effectively, well, it was going to be an arts law degree, but it was the first year of arts at Sydney University. And I was only 17 because I was quite young. I started school at four and all the rest of it. So by the time I got to university, I was only 17. And I did it because every, that's what everyone told me to do. And so I rock up to this sandstone university, which felt like something out of Dead Poets Society and caught the train from Maryland to Redfern every day and... After about five months, I totally freaked out because I, I recall people saying, oh, where are you from? And you'd say, oh, South Wentworthville. And they'd go, oh, the mountains, how lovely. And you go, no, South Wenny, like <laughs> South Wentworthville. they go, oh, because they thought it was Wentworth Falls. Oh, right. And then they'd say, oh, where's that? And you'd say, oh, about 20 minutes west of Parramatta, you know. And they'd go, oh. But there was always a but. But what school did you go to? And you go, oh, Holroyd High, you know. And it hadn't occurred to me that that, would matter, mm. you know. And they went, oh, Coleroy, the beaches. And you'd go, no, not Coleroy, Holroyd, like hemorrhoid high, man. That's 
<laughs> anyway, I, it just it wasn't so much that that people had this expectation that you went to a certain school or you were from a certain suburb. It was just I think I was really too immature to handle it. You know, mm. I just I didn't really know anybody. There wasn't anybody else from my school there. I was really lonely. Mm. And I was really intimidated. Mm. So I deferred and it was probably my first adult decision that I really made for myself because I was a pretty good girl. Like I was straighty, 180, nerdy, kind of get on with everybody, kid at school. And I remember going home and telling my parents that I'd effectively dropped out and they went nuts. Maureen and Don were not happy, Jan. (laughs) (laughs) And this is before Hex, so there were no financial ramifications oh, right. at all. Uh, and it was just like, you're not going to be a job lodger in this house. <laughs> I'm going, I'm getting a job, I'm getting a job. Like, so I was madly looking through the paper. In those days, you looked through the paper for employment. And GJ Coles and Co were looking for trainers. I went, that's a job. <laughs> and that was it. But actually, I did get a job before that as a car detailer on Parramatta Road. It was hilarious. So I rocked up to this place because I like washing cars. I don't know why. Don't ask me. I'm not OCD, by the way. Do but you still? Is this <laughs> No. I hate cars. <laughs> I don't even care about cars. I'd rather have a flash holiday than a flash car. Mm. But... um. I remember going to this detail on Parramatta Road and the guy looked at me and he went, you don't really want to be a car detailer, do you love it? And I went, yeah, yeah. I was Because at that stage I was going, a job, a job, any job, any job, just to piece more hand on, any job, any job. And he said, I really don't know that you're going to want to do this job. And I went, yeah, yeah, I really want to be a car detailer. <laughs> he saw straight through me because he gave me the job and then he just said, I think I rocked up for the first day and he said, I'm not going to sack you. But he said, I really think you should go and find yourself a nice job somewhere else. Don't think you belong here. And I'm always grateful to you. Yeah. Yeah. So I ended up being a trainee manager at Kmart in Marylands. And I think I lasted a couple of months there. And the best thing that I liked on that was being on the service desk. You know, whenever they say, Mr. Steed, Mr. Steed, which was their call for a shoplifter. That was the security code. For oh, a Mr. Steed. Mr. Steed. Mr. Steed to the service desk. That meant shoplifter on the loose. Oh, wow. <laughs> so like, how did you, like, were you, was everybody on the lookout? And if they saw a shoplifter, they had to go up to the mic and tell the whole store? Well, I'm not sure how it worked. It just sent security to wherever Mr. Steed was, the shoplifter was. He said, Mr. Steed to menswear, please. Off went security to menswear to catch the shoplifter. So I think that's how it worked. But you'd also get to do the red light specials where I'd crack gags and get into a bit of trouble. Oh, really? What were the red light specials? Like, were they just like the specials and you just had to announce them in store? Yeah, like it'd be like, you know, red light specials on men's pajamas, not that they're going to stay on for very long, you know, (laughs) stuff like that. And I enjoyed that the most, but I was also, I think my department, I had i had stationery for a while and that was a nightmare. And they also, in those days, required women to wear skirts. And I remember going to the personal manager because we had been given these leaflets saying GJ Coles and Co are an equal opportunity company. Mm. And I went into the personnel manager and said, listen, can we wear pants then? Because I'm stacking shelves and stuff and skirts aren't great and da 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 and I didn't last long after that. It was just, yeah, I think I was trouble. Wow. And I also, because I was, there were, I don't know, three or four training managers in the store. And when the checkouts got really busy, they'd call you in to help out on the checkouts. But it was always me. It was never the blokes. And I raised that as well. And right. said, look, I don't mind doing it. But why don't you get, you know, Bizzo from Shoes yeah. or Watsy from Menswear? Because they're training managers too. And they should, should be doing this as well. Not long after that, I got a job at Pizza Hut at Harris Park. 
Did you? Were you always the type of person that you that stood up for themselves? Because sometimes you, you know, you put up with a lot, of, a lot more crap when you're younger because you just go, oh well, I guess this is just what I have to do, you know. So there are some women that maybe wouldn't have gone get old mate over there to do it, or I, I don't know. That seems a pretty strong thing at a young age. No, it didn't occur to me that it was because it mm. didn't. I was Pollyanna. I really thought in those days the world was an egalitarian place. And if you worked hard and you were honest, you would be rewarded. And so it didn't even occur to me that doing that was something that you shouldn't do because maybe you shouldn't speak out. And I think mum and dad brought me up to think that too. And it was only in later years that I learned. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes, Chris, it's just better if you shut up. <laughs> yeah. you know, which is weird. So that came to me much later. I think I was much braver when I was younger, but it wasn't because I thought I was being brave. It mm. was just because I thought the world was a fair place. So you went to Charles Sturt University to study journalism. How did that jump from the Kmart job and the pizza shop go to deciding that you wanted to do journalism and going to Bathurst? Well, this is the thing. I have devastated work experience kids over the years at various media places where I've worked because they always said, how did you get into it? We're going, you don't really want to know. It was kind of an accident. But I worked at Pizza Hut for a bit and then I – because I had waitressing experience. Suddenly I got this job at the Clock Cellar restaurant, which was under the now very fancy Clock Hotel in Surrey Hills. But when I was working there, it wasn't gentrified. It was a hornet's nest of organised crime and interesting characters. And there was a great steak restaurant underneath it with a fantastic cellar and crazy Portuguese chefs who cooked the best steak in town. Bingo, journalists. Hello. They all went there regularly and there was this fantastic bloke and I, had, I didn't know him from Adam at the time, a guy called Peter Bowers who worked for the Sydney Morning Herald and he used to call me his Centrinian schoolgirl. I have no idea what that meant. I still don't really get it. <laughs> I, I don't, don't get the reference that. but I think I was just so much younger than everybody there and I was bouncing off the walls because I was enthusiastic and talked to people and you got to know the regulars and he was one of the regulars and after a while he said to me, what are you doing here, young lady? You should be at university. I said, well, I kind of was. I dropped out. I don't really know what I want to do. I've deferred. I'm supposed to go back next year. I don't really think I want to be a lawyer. And he said, oh, no. He said, God knows how bloody boring. Why would you want to be a lawyer? You need to be a journalist. And I went, okay, yeah, that sounds kind of good because I was much better with words at school than numbers and science. And anyway, so I just went, okay. He said, I'll tell you what you need to do. He said, you need to go and study communications. And I said, look, mate, I just, I'm not good with semaphores and things like that. Like I just, you know, the whole Navy thing. I was thinking that's communications. <laughs> I had no idea. And he said, he rolled his eyes. I still remember the look in his face. And he just said, no, no, no. He said, communications, it's a degree in journalism. You need to go and study at Mitchell College, which is what it was back mm. then in Bathurst. He said, and then come to me and I'll give you a job at the Sydney Morning Herald. And I just said, okay. And because I was so naive, I, I just said, yeah, that sounds good. Okay. So I look up this Mitchell College joint and I think, yeah, sounds all right. So I get on the XPT and I go out to the open day and I meet Roger Patching, who's the head of communications. And Roger leans back and says, you've got it. You've got a place at Sydney University. Why should we give you a place here? And I was going, oh, oh. I didn't think because Peter Bowers said I should study journalism. Because <laughs> yeah, a bloke in a steak restaurant told me <laughs> to. <laughs> and I just said, well, it's just because I really want to be a journalist. And he went, mm. It was so horrible to me. I've, I've never forgotten it. And I just walked out, like with my tail between the legs, walked back down to Bathurst Station from the university, got on the train, came home and went, hmm, don't think that's going to happen. And then something happened on the train. I thought, bugger him. I'm going to apply for a scholarship. And I'm going to apply for a scholarship in PR because who'd want to do that? No one would want to do that. So I've got a much better chance of getting a PR scholarship than I have of a journalism scholarship. 
And also it meant that it would pay for me to live there if I got this scholarship and mum and dad wouldn't have to pay because at this stage Maureen and Don are still very cranky with me. Yeah, that's so, right. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I fill out this, you know, at the last minute, I was very, I was a really good procrastinator, which is why journalism's a good fit for me because you, you, are, you are not allowed to procrastinate because mm. you have deadlines. But anyway, so I fill out this thing. I go for, I get an interview for the interview panel. <clears throat> I sit in the interview panel and the interview, one of the professors says, that is one of the best expositions of PR I have ever read. I wrote it with my boyfriend at the time. <gasps> had no idea what I was talking about. But I remember using the word multifarious and thinking that, <laughs> that was fabulous. And I was so late with the application, I had to catch the XPT back to Bathurst to hand it in because it wouldn't have made it in the mail. So I'm, go- I'm talking about the days of mail here. There's no yeah. email. So I actually handed in at the last minute. I get the interview. I get the scholarship. Ironically, it's from James Hardy. <laughs> Years later, I'm interviewing Bernie Banton about the asbestos Oh, <laughs> wow. Thinking, he's such a beautiful man. How do I tell him that my first year of university was funded by a James Hardy PR scholarship? Oh, <laughs> wow. So why were you saying that P- P- nobody wanted to do PR then? Because, my God, everybody's flocking to it like flies to shit these days. <laughs> this is like 1985. And, yeah. and this is my broad assumption. This is my assertion that no one would want to do PR because I'd never really heard of it. Like this, right. I was so naive. I had no contact with with that sort of world ever in my life, you know. So it wasn't even a concept to me. And I thought, oh, God, that just sounds really dumb. Who'd want to do that? Apologies to anyone who does PR. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's fair. But, uh, so when you got the scholarship, what did you think? I just thought, giddy up, I'm off to Mitchell College. So off I went. And um, and in first year you did everything and then in second year you made the choice. And in se- I had the great pleasure of Roger Patching saying to me, I don't know whether Roger's listening to this, but Roger saying to me, what are you doing PR for? I think you should come and do broadcast journalism with me. And I went, okay. Wow. <laughs> so, and by that stage, I kind of thought, yeah, I'm kind of enjoying this journalism thing. And because I like talking to people and, mm. and, and like finding out about their stories. And yeah, I like there's a bit of, you know, you could use a bit of the ballet showbiz thing in it as well. So, yeah, so I ended up doing broadcast journalism. And then halfway through my last year, 2UE had a whole lot of people off at Expo in Brisbane. And they were basically looking for scab labour. So they went to Mitchell and said, need some students because we've got so many people at Expo in Brisbane that our newsroom's vacant. So we need some students. And I'd been working to fund my way through university at a 24-hour restaurant called City Extra in Parramatta, ironically wearing a newspaper as a shirt. And <laughs> um, I've spent many t- – my dad used to love City Extra. The pumpkin soup and the multigrain rolls. <laughs> yes. mm-hmm. And the Burmese grilled chicken. He was obsessed with it. We always had to go to City Extra for lunch. Anyway, moving on, yes. I probably served you. You may have done. And you may dad. have done. Yeah. <laughs> I had a ball at City Extra. They were so good to me. They really mm. were. They were so flexible because whenever I came down for holidays, they'd always give me work. They were wonderful. And um, anyway, so I was reluctant to put – I was probably one of the last people to put my name down for this part-time because I was thinking work experience. I'm in my last year at uni. I probably should get some work experience, you know, Okay, I put my name down. I was like, you know, fifteenth on the list or something like that. And uh, I got, I was heard nothing. Went to City Extra. I got home from work my morning because I was maximising my bucks. So I worked from eleven at night till seven in the morning because there were penalty rates. You could right. you could make so much money working that shift, and because no one wanted to work it, I was happy to work it. I worked with this great chick called Nat. Nat and I had a ball working overnights. So it was great. Anyway, phone rings at home. 
seven o'clock in the morning, everyone's asleep. I picked the phone. It was seven thirty. It would have been by the time I got home from work. Pick up the phone. It's to UA. They went, "Oh, are you uh, are you Chris Bath?" And I went, "Yeah." And they said, "Can you come in?" And I went, "Who is this?" And they said, "It's to UA." And I went, "Oh." Okay, um, yeah, sure. I said, well, when, what time will you be here? I said, oh, take me probably, where, where, where is 2UE? Berry Street, North Sydney. And I'm going, never been there. Don't think I've even been to North Sydney. I just said, okay, um, probably, I'm calculating train stops because I see the world in train stops going, probably an hour and a half. An hour and a half, where are you? I said, went with Phil. I went, okay, get here as soon as you can. Hang up. Okay, okay. I leave a note for everyone downstairs going, I'm going to 2UE. I'll see you when I get home. So I have a quick shower, change out of my newspaper shirt, off I pop to 2UE. I walk into 2UE. I'm scared stiff. The bloke behind the desk looks at me and says, who are you? Because I walked into the newsroom and, and uh, it was a guy called Greg Lenthan. And I said, um, oh, I'm Chris Barth. He said, oh, you're Chris Barth. We were expecting a bloke. Oh. And, uh, <laughs> and I said... The last time I looked, I wasn't. Is that okay? And he went, yep, all right, here's your list of jobs for the day. Grab a super scope and go. And I went, huh? I thought I'd be making coffee. They just didn't have people. So I got all the jobs that a cadet would get. So my first ever job was going to the Intercontinental because Mick Jagger was announcing that he was doing a solo tour of Australia. I walked in through the door. I didn't know what a super scope was, by the way. What is a super scope? Well, it's a tape recorder. Oh, it's a recorder. I had a, a mobile phone that was like a brick. I had a two-way radio. I had a big tape recorder, a mic and alligator clips so I could send the sound back through the phones. You know, these are the days we can unscrew the phones and put the alligator clips in. Oh, my in. goodness. Is that how you send it back, by unscrewing the phone and sticking yeah, you, alligator you would, clips you in? you would find a phone. You would unscrew the bit that you the talked bottom, through. The bottom, yeah, I remember. And then there were two little um, metal clips like adenoid I don't know what the technical yeah. number metal things I've never been good yeah with alligator stuff. clips yep little you pegs put your alligator clips on and you attach it to your super scope and you hit play and you send it down the line back to the station where it was recorded on a reel-to-reel tape recorder and then that was put onto a cart and then that's how the sound got played out I had no idea. Old lady radio. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I just assumed you would have had to physically take it back and then you'd put it in there. I didn't know that you had the little alligator clips down the phone line. That's amazing. And then if they were really desperate for the sound, if it was a breaking story, you'd hold the two-way over the speaker on the super scope. Right. And that's if you're really desperate. Can you imagine how bad the sound quality was? Um, So, yeah, so you'd do that. But this was my first gig. So I walk into the intercom with my alligator clips and everything ready to go. And I get handed a glass of champagne and a Reebok T-shirt, which I've still got. (laughs) (laughs) And I walk in and there's Richard Wilkins and Morris Parker and they were famous. And I looked in and I went, oh, my God. And this guy walked up and said, do you want to plug in? And I went, yeah, sure. Going, I don't even know what he's talking about. (laughs) Is he propositioning (laughs) me? Is this part of my job? figure it out anyway so you plugged into this thing and you set your mic up and all the sound went through anyway so it all worked and I asked a question because I was thinking I've got to ask a question I've got to ask a question and it was something along the lines of we be scared up on stage on your own without the rest of the stones something like that and it was one of those things in Sydney media because it's not there aren't a lot of people and everyone just turned around and went <laughs> all these heads going who's the new girl who's the new girl I was going scared 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 anyway question was answered and um it, he wasn't there it was a t- it was a teleconference but that was good enough for me and then I had to file for the midday news. So I had to go and find a public phone somewhere because the brick phone I had no idea how to use. I'd never had a mobile phone in my life. And I'm ringing in and I was so nervous. I had to write this 30-second piece and send back a bit of actuality. I can't even remember what I said. And the person sitting in the jumbo booth back at 2UE headquarters in Berry Street recording it just said to me, OK, let's just do that again. Take a deep breath. 
it's okay. It's not live. I went, okay. So I did it again. <laughs> and they said, let's just try that one more time. <laughs> It was atrocious. Then after that, I ended up at Al Grasby was launching Gough Whitlam's biography or vice the other way around. I can't remember. I ended up down at the Opera House at that. And then I ended up in a demonstration in Kent Street because there were massive education demonstrations going on in, at the time. This is 1988 by now. Anyway, so I had a whole week like that. And I remember going home to mum and dad and watching the TV news that night going, that's, that's my question, that's my question, that's my question. It wasn't my – it was the answer to my question. Yes. Mum and dad are looking at me going, yeah, right. <laughs> and I went, it is, it's my question, that's my question, that's the answer to my question, that's my question, they used the answer to my question. And mum and dad are just going, yeah, right. And I think they thought that I was telling porky pies mm. about all these amazing things I did in that first week. And by the end of the first week, they offered me a job. So it was a – look, I did work hard that week. I think if you – you know, I worked really hard that week. But it was – a lot of it was luck as well and being in the right place at the right time. There is a lot of kismet attached to getting a job in media, I think. But I, I feel like you're underestimating what appears to be quite a natural skill for some of this stuff. Like, sure, you wouldn't have been kick-ass, nobody is when they first roll in the door, but there's obviously something about you that made somebody who work in journalism see something in you that would be good. You still had to write the essay that got you in the door. You still had to prove yourself enough in that week where they thought, okay, yes, we're understaffed, but here's somebody we can give a list of things with zero training and they can actually come back with four pieces of content that we can run on the news or we can run somewhere and we can use it so there is also that natural ability to kind of just hit the deep end and somehow swim your way out yeah I think at the time it felt more like drowning my way to the top (laughs) (laughs) I was so terrified and I bet you were but again like I, I think back at the time and when they took me into this office with these two three men I think it was and they sat down and they said, we'd like to offer you a job. And I said, well, I've got my last year of uni, like I've still got to finish. And and the great thing is that I've been so stupid at Mitchell that I'd done extra subjects because I thought the subject load was the same as the load at Sydney Uni. So I'd unwittingly done all these extra subjects for two years. And I was always looking at my friends going, why have I got so much extra work to do? Like, what are you, how come you guys have only got like this number of subjects and I've got this number of subjects? So I'd stuffed up completely. And I'd actually done myself a favour because it meant I only had two units to left to do to finish the degree so Mitchell was kind enough to let me come back and do those part-time so I I finished those and but the funny thing was I'm sitting in this and this goes back to that temerity of youth thing in this room with three blokes senior like the guy that ran the station the news director and his two IC and I'm sitting in this office and they offer me a job and and they said we want to offer you a cadetship I said well it would have to be a final year cadetship because I've done my degree and the deal is if you've done a degree that's three years of a cadetship and when you're first out like it's you get a final year cadetship I don't want a first year cadetship and here's me saying this not even realizing it just going you arrogant little shit you know (laughs) had some balls back I didn't I just didn't even know not to you know you know what I mean and I and uh, they just laughed and they said okay We'll offer you a final year cadetship. And they must have amused them no end that I'm sitting there going, nah, 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 I'm not going to take your first year cadetship. I'll have a final year, thanks, because then I'll get a grading really quickly after that, you know. But that ignorance is sometimes the best approach because you do realise what you can get when you say no, but you think some of the negotiations that you can go into sometimes and if you feel nervous or you know things, you can undersell yourself and not get what you need. But there are plenty of kids that probably at your age would have been offered the same thing and would have got 
half what you'd got because they would never have thought to say it. So sometimes that that ignorance is great because you think, oh, well, I didn't mean to be rude or be a tough negotiator, but now all of a sudden I've walked out with something that I couldn't have got if I hadn't have mentioned it. Yeah, part of me wishes that now as a 50-year-old woman I could have part of my brain wiped so that I... <laughs> I could go in and do that now because now I'm so across the sensitivities of it all that I'm just like a rabbit in headlights yeah. whenever I do that stuff. Yeah, but back then it was just that ignorance was my friend, like you say. When did you feel like, was it at uni or was it in that job at 2UE or was it after that where you thought, this is for me? This oh, that glass me. of champagne and that Reebok T-shirt got me across the line. <laughs> Richard Wilkins, we have Richard you to Wilkins. thank. <laughs> Before the work. Sorry, Richard. Was that it? I mean, walking into that room and saying this is – because there is, I suppose, something very – very special and very privileged about this job and that is that you get to do things I say it all the time people are going to think I'm a broken record but you get to do on a Monday to Friday people's bucket list items that Mm. they wish they could maybe do once in their life and it's your nine to five so walking in and seeing Mick Jagger there would be people that would pay most of their income to do that and it's your it's just what you've got to do before you go to the next job there is an intoxicating nature about this business that just makes you think I don't know that I'm ever going to find anything that's going to excite me like this I've never lost that feeling Mm. that that you you are in such a privileged position to watch moments in history to meet incredible people also to meet some scumbags and I just (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) they're out there but you know and I wonder if part of it is the and it sounds really corny but the adrenaline of it you know I still from a really early press conference when I was at TUA and uh, there was a, a referendum on gerrymandering and I remember being at a media conference at the University of New South Wales and Gough Whitlam was speaking about gerrymandering and, you know, you walk in and you politely put your microphone in front and say, hello, Mr Whitlam, and just sort of walk backwards. And Anyway, so I hid at the back of the room because I was still the new kid in town at that point and really scared and I remember... Him saying, right, are we all ready? Are we all ready? In that Gough Whitlam voice. And uh, and him saying, where's Miss 2UE? Where's Miss 2UE? She can ask the first question. And me going, oh, God, like dying. And then, again, there's that prairie dog thing where everyone turns around and goes, who's the new girl? Who's the yeah. new girl? It's just like, <laughs> all these journalists that I really looked up to in the room and me going, okay. And I stammer out the first question. I can't even remember what it was. And I thought, oh, off the hook. And he said, what's your follow-up question, Miss 2UE? I went, oh, my God. I Why was he die. picking on you? Uh, maybe because I was the most nervous, polite person in the room. I, I, I have no idea. Or maybe I tickled his fancy because I just he just looked at me and wanted to play with me. I don't know. Jeff Kennett's like that. You interview Jeff Kennett. And he's got, he gets this look on his face of, I am the cat. And right. you, my friend, are the mouse. Yeah. Let's engage. You know, there are some people like that and where as you become sport for them, I, I don't think in a nasty way. Mm. I just think that it uh, it livens up their life and I think they think that they're going to help you out a bit at the same time. I was this cadet journalist from TUE going, please don't ask me another. Please, please, please. It's my job to ask him questions and I'm just praying that he doesn't want another one. But there's moments like that where there's a real adrenaline rush in that and to other things like many, many years later hosting something like five hours of royal wedding coverage from this sort of tiny box in this precariously built thing outside Buck Palace and having to think on your feet and have things technically go wrong but to air you can't 
let on that that's happening, but you're still standing there pinching yourself going, oh, my God, I'm from South Wentworthville. What am I doing here? You know, mm, <laughs> just, yeah. you know and it's, I, th- I think there are a couple of things about it. It's, it's the adrenaline. It's that you get this front row seat to history and it is a real privilege to be there. I think some people forget about that, you know, but it is a, it's just such a wonderful thing to be there and, and see things that you'd normally only see on the telly or hear about on the radio, but you're, you're the one telling everybody about it. It's great. Do you deal well with pressure? Do you work well under pressure? Yeah, I think I do. I think it's from years of being a procrastinator at school because I was always... Oh, yeah, always last minute. I was exactly the same. <laughs> Overnight assignments. <laughs> yeah. you know, why do it weeks before when you go to the library and steal whatever books are left yeah. and then pretend that you've been all over yeah. it and stick it under the lecturer's door the next morning. Um, so I think that helped. I think I'm not... That I'm recommending that to anybody and any parent listening, don't let your children listen to this podcast. But I think that helped. Mm. Um, and I don't mind a bit of anarchy on air. Media is pretty prefabricated these days and there are those rare moments where there is no script, there's nothing and you've got to fly by the seat of your pants. And in television, you're really only as good as the crew around you in those instances because they're the people saying to you, okay, love, in your ear, you know, I've got chopper shots coming but they won't be here for a minute. This is what we know so far and you're going blah, blah, blah while somebody's saying this to you. And you need a director and a producer who know you well enough to see that kind of hairy eyeball thing going, yep, I'm okay for a minute, or no, I'm not okay, I need some help, you know. And it's those things that I really enjoy doing. I don't know why, but I I like it when things go wrong. There's a real skill in the ability to keep on going, and I find that radio, having come up through radio, that's really helped me now doing television because, I mean, the set could fall down, we could lose all comms and we could still have an hour show and have no dramas. Like it wouldn't bother me at all because that's what you do in radio. You just talk for three hours and you just have to come, things have to come out of your mouth consistently and there's no script and that's it. You've got a plan of some description, but you just have to be able to have a conversation. So it's it's a really good skill to be able to do that. And you're right, it's, it's, it's kind of nice, I find, to be out in that high wire because you feel like you're using your brain you're like oh I'm actually working here like I'm actually proving that I have some I have developed some semblance of skill in in the years that I've been doing this and I now get to execute what I what I think I've learned you know and it's quite satisfying in those moments when you get to the end of a a segment or a sentence even you go we're, we're all still here. <laughs> it worked. It came out all right. I haven't said it. I haven't defamed anyone. I haven't, that, the, the thought came out well and we're on our way. You know, there's some, I, I find there's real uh, accomplishment in that for me. Yeah, I really then there enjoy is those, it. those moments though where you go, oh God, what did I just say? <sighs> Can a crevasse open and swallow me? I've had those too. <laughs> yeah. like there's, there's that side of it you go, well, that didn't go so well. Okay, let it go and move on. Yeah. You know, that does happen too. So it doesn't always. Or the moment well. when somebody's saying something to you and you know it's your turn next and you've got nothing. Yeah. And they're saying, and you're just searching their eyes for like, come on, give me, just say something and let it trigger something in my brain. And then you're thinking, where am I going to go? I'm just going to have to throw the ball somewhere else and talk about something that I can talk about. Um, so how long were you at 2UE for? So I was there for, I think it was just under a year. So about 12 months I was there. And I still think... I learnt more in that first year than what I learnt afterwards. I'm not saying I didn't learn anything afterwards. I'm still learning. Now, mm. I don't think I think if you're smart, you never stop learning. But 
I just had so many great people at 2UE. That newsroom was humming. We were literally radioactive. That was the call sign of the radio station. And I used to think it was hilarious working somewhere nuclear, like... <laughs> radioactive 2UE. Like it's just... You do jazz hands to 2UE. You know, we were winning the ratings, had ratings parties, you know. Um, and there were some brilliant journalists in that newsroom who I, I learned a lot from. And they were really nurturing. They took you under their wing. And it was, it was old school learning but it was brilliant you know i i learned a lot you know i would have he'll go unnamed but one of the breakfast editors like throwing carts at me going ms bath this grab if you think this is the best grab from your interview with bob carr it's shit find me another one you know <laughs> and he was right you know um yeah. i had i had another bloke called alex payton who was uh, the court reporter who taught me how to do court reporting at the supreme court um, and there was also another wonderful woman there who didn't work for TUA woman who still writes for uh, she's with News Limited at the moment, Janet Fife Yeomans. And there was a real collaboration between the journalists in the Supreme Court in those days. And I learned so much from both of them. They were fantastic. Another guy called Paul Christensen, who's still he's still producing Alan Jones. Yes, uh, yes. Yeah, he I learned is. a lot from him. Um, and so many women in that newsroom were wonderful we we i don't know why we used to call ourselves the bush pigs <laughs> but the bushies if you're listening i love you all and I, you know they, they were because i was the youngest you know mm. and they were all so caring and nurturing and just wonderful to work with and i just had an absolute ball but i had a girlfriend who was working in albury who rang me and said, Barthy, I'm leaving my job in Albury. I think you need to come and work down here in television. I'm going to Capital 7 in Canberra to work. I think you need to apply for my job and come and work in TV. And by that stage, I'd been on the road with a few people at Channel 9 and they'd sort of said, oh, you should come and work at Channel 9. But I didn't want to go and make coffee. Having been an on-the-road reporter at 2UE, I thought, I want to make coffee. And I knew I would be. And so I applied for this job at Prime TV in Albury and um, did the interview and got the job. Was TV something that you wanted to eventually do or had you really caught the radio bug being at 2UE or did you not? were you just happy to go where the wind took you? I was pretty happy to go where the wind took me. Mm. I, was, I just thought, well, you know, why, why not? I'm young, I can, you know, try TV. Everyone thought I was nuts, by the way, in Sydney. They're like, what are you leaving Sydney for? The other thing was that I'd fallen in love with living in regional Australia because I'd spent two and a half years in Bathurst and loved it and made so many friends from regional Australia and spent so much time in country towns and had fallen in love with it. So a part of me really wanted to go back to that and that's what Albury was. Mm. And it was a real chance to get out there and do some of the rural stories and things that I'd, I'd learned from friends at university. So... It was just, it was great, you know, and, and, and it was a really, again, a really small, much smaller staff than 2UE and we would sometimes drive 400 kilometres in a day and you'd punch out three or four stories because there weren't that many of us in the newsroom and we had a ball. We had an absolute ball. Was regional telly similar to regional radio where you just do everything? Yeah, yeah. So you would report and then you'd help the bulletin go to air at night the camos would shoot and cut and you'd sit in with them, you know, and you'd run to voice booths. And, you know, three stories a day is a lot of content wow. to produce, plus the odd voiceover or, you know, live read or whatever. Uh, and then you'd do the weather or, you know, you might pop up in the studio. So it was this great grounding where, where you got a real taste of everybody's job and it, it gave you a real appreciation for the cogs in the wheel, I think, in television rather than thinking the reporter's king. You learnt that you're only as good as the people around you and it was such a great 
education in terms of TV. My big fear now with with we're losing we're losing those regional training yeah. grounds with what is happening in media at the moment, and they are essential. Mm. They are essential for producing good young journalists. So it's not just about the content thing. I mean, and that, that's a valid concern as well for regional audiences. They need their stories told and they're not going to get them from Sydney or Melbourne and they won't get the same depth as what they will get from their own regional newsrooms. But that aside, it's also a factor in training young journalists because you have a much kinder audience who are used to having young journalists come through and regional audiences are really forgiving and wonderful with young journalists and that that's a big part of it as well it's not just the people that you're working with it's the audience that you're giving information to and then you learn you learn a lot of things about the sensitivities of reporting in a small community which is also very important you know you need to think about the ramifications and the impact on the community when you do a story you have less chance to think about that I think when you work in the big city metropolitan newsroom and that was a learning curve for me coming from TUE. What was, do you remember what the first story was that you ever stood up in front of a camera and did? Yeah, I do. It was, um, it was there was an escapee from, there was a low security jail at Beechworth and it was a last minute thing and there was an escapee and everybody else, because it was my first week on the job and so they sort of lulled me in gently. They weren't going to put me on air straight away. But this bloke escaped from Beechworth. So suddenly I'm driving to Beechworth from Albury with Andrew Clacey, the cameraman, in the car. And he's going, so, you know, where have you come from? I'm going, oh, yeah. So I'm making phone calls, finding out about the jail. And anyway, so we get there and he said, oh, you're going to have to do a stand-up. And I went, what's that? <laughs> this doesn't bode <laughs> well. Sort of, they, Mitchell had different terminology. Yeah. You know, every media organisation hmm. has its own language for things that they do. Like, you know, at the project they talk about bumpers. I don't know what a bloody yeah. bumper is. <laughs> So it was you have to do a stand up and I went, Well that he said you stand in front of the camera and talk. I went, What do I say? And he's going, It's all right, mate, I'll tell you what to say. And this is the regional camera, some of them have been there for years, I've seen it all. So he just said, oh, you just sort of stand up. And he just said, basically, rule to stand-ups is, you know, it's either changing a timeline, so you can talk about a timeline or talk about something, you know, we don't have pictures for. I said, we haven't got any pictures, mate. We've got pictures of trees <laughs> and the exterior of the jail. <laughs> you know, and we, we've got one. Of, we might, if we're lucky, by the time we get back, get one of those identikit pictures of the bloke yeah. who's escaped. He said, well, just think of something we haven't got pictures for. I said, we've got pictures. He said, well, I don't care what you say, but we've got to shoot this and get back to the station, right? Okay, okay. I can't remember what I said. And I think it was probably a lousy stand-up. It would have been horrific. So, But I learnt as I went along, mm. you know, and, and yeah. But that was my first piece of camera about a Beechworth escapade. Do you, I mean, was that a similar experience to 2UE in that you were just thrown in and you just had to start working and there was no real, I mean, did you ever at any point have any sort of formal training or was it literally just you're going to make the mistakes we're going to give you the feedback on those mistakes then we'll send you out somewhere new tomorrow and you'll just keep going like that pretty much because they Mm. didn't really have the time Mm. to be quite honest they were so time poor and there weren't enough staff so you learnt by your mistakes and that's one of the things I always say to well would always say to young journos at seven was don't be demoralized if your work gets criticized you know people nine times out of ten aren't doing it just to have a power trip. They're actually doing it because they want to help you. So you need to take it on board. You need to take on board what people say. I remember, I think I'd, I'd been there for about 12 months and um, somebody said to me, oh, you should send a tape off to somebody in one of the big stations in Melbourne. So I got really constructive feedback from a news director down there. He actually bothered to give me notes and I was amazed because he must have had a million tapes, this bloke. He said, can I just suggest that you use some nat sound? Now, up until then... 
it had never actually even occurred to me to just have something without words, without someone talking, just to use some that sound. I'm sure we'd been taught that at Mitchell, but I was I was off in Radio Land by that stage. <laughs> yeah. So apologies, Mitchell. <laughs> but yeah, and he said we need to hear the flames, we need to hear the whoosh of the wind, we need to be there, and the gnat sound is going to take us there. So you need to use more gnat sound. Like it, it, even that was one of the most constructive pieces of advice to this day that I've ever been given. Now, I don't know why... Well, you'd use that in radio and I knew that, but I don't know why I thought, oh, well, in television, the pictures tell the story. No, the sound's really important as well, mm. you know, and that hadn't actually occurred to me. And so I would sit in on edits then with, with cameras and go, no, 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 I just want five seconds of nothing, just the sound and the pictures. Really? And they, I mean, it hadn't obviously occurred to them either. I'd go, just, just let breathe, mm. let breathe. They go, I've been <laughs> a minute 20. I'm like, five seconds out of a minute 20 is not too much to ask. Just, can we please, please, please put a bit of that sound in? Look at you just you know. swanning in. Let it breathe, <laughs> everybody. Let it breathe. <laughs> this is straight from the creative mind of Bath. But then I kind of went a bit OTT. Like I remember there was a plan to put a toxic waste incinerator in Corowa and the local community was outraged by it and, and really banded together over it. So I was the toxic waste incinerator reporter and they had their demonstration. And in those days there was um, the, the AIDS, remember the AIDS anti-AIDS campaign that Simon Reynolds did and there were, there were people with masks that they used to wear like long dripping skull ghost masks i just remember was this i just remember the bowling ball the grim reaper bowling yeah well yeah Yeah, the the grim reaper thing Mm. basically so they had organized this demonstration against the toxic waste incinerator with people in grim reaper gear walking down the main street of cora and a lot of people turned out for it so i went down and shot the whole thing and i came back and i said to the cameraman i said i want to use some music and they said, oh, because I'd seen something on TV with music. I thought, oh, I'm going to do that one day. That's a really good idea. I thought, this is the story. So I got the March of the Montagues and the Capulets from Romeo and Juliet, which is this fabulous piece of music by Prokofiev that sort of goes... I can't sing. But anyway. <laughs> I'm digging it. I'm digging it. So I lay this under... The people in their Grim Reaper gear walking through the main street of Corowa, right? The news director's not there. I run it under. It's a really dramatic start to the story. And then we go into the bulk of the story and the concerns of the community. Anyway, um, for some reason, the news director didn't see it before it went to air. So it went to air. I got called into his office and he said, do you think that was a little bit over the top? I went, well, it's a pretty over the top issue, you know, with due respect. And I wanted to get people's attention. He said, I think the, the march itself might have had their attention. I said, but it gives you a taste. <laughs> anyway, I think the yeah. Grim Reaper masks without the bumper bum underneath would have done the job. I'm still very proud of it. <laughs> Did you have to cover any ridiculous, stupid stories at that stage? Because at that time, because I one of the great joys of working in regional radio has found is that you ended up in some joints where you were like, what am I doing here? Were there any of those sort of silly stories that you covered? Yeah, I think almost every day, you know, yeah. and you have to because mm. it's just, it's, it, it, media's a hungry beast. You got a half an hour to fill in a bullet and so you do. I think my favourite silly story and, you know, and also you get to learn, it's like Groundhog Day sometimes working in regional areas because the same thing comes up every year, you know, the Wodonga show, the Albury show. The, <laughs> but I think my favourite was the Angus stud sale that was held at Wodonga every year and you'd have to talk about bulls and straws and it just I and you'd have all these shots and you'd be saying to the cameraman please don't get another shot of the bulls balls please (laughs) like we can't I don't know how much of that we can put to air right and they're going but it's all about the balls just going I just 
how can we do it in a subtle way? Like we're talking about semen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just <laughs> yeah, do we actually have to see the ball sack? <laughs> oh, can this got to be another way to illustrate it? They said, what do you want, a shot of a fountain? I'm going, yeah, actually, probably a good point. But yeah, you go yeah. on the balls. But, but the, other, the other side of that is, is I would always say to people, if you can work in a regional media outlet, you learn to make a story out of something. And it doesn't mean sensationalise something, but it means learning to talk to people about their story, however trivial, and it might not be a big ticket item, but it's still a story and it's still valid. So you learn to make a story out of anything and I think it's a really valuable skill to have and that's... I'll always be grateful for, like, I worked in, in regional television. Well, Newcastle's kind of semi-metropolitan, really, but I, it's still regional TV for nearly seven years. And I will always be grateful for the experience. You know, it was it was a fabulous time in my career. It was wonderful. So you went to NBN after being in Albury? Yeah, so yeah. I was in Albury. And then I just, I kind of, I miss, I wanted to get closer to mum and dad and... The opportunity came up there, so I went up there as a reporter. But unbeknownst to me, the girl who was the newsreader at the time was going to Alaska. And so, yeah, they sort of auditioned me to be the newsreader. And I'd done a little bit of newsreading down in Albury, um, but not a lot. But NBN was like a much bigger newsroom and they had much better resources. And they, to all intents and purposes, they were a metropolitan newsroom. And that was a pretty amazing experience working up there. How does the news reading go after you've been out and about on the road? Do you feel a bit chained to the desk? Like, is it a bit weird to be stuck in a studio when you're so used to being on the phone, on the road, racing out to stories? Yeah, that was weird. That mm. was that, that took a bit of adjustment. But in those days, aggregation was happening in media. And so it was pretty busy. Like, we used to put out bulletins. They used to call them windows. So what they do is they would pre-record... I don't, know, I don't know how many bulletins we used to do, like one for northwestern New, New South Wales, one for the mid-north coast and one for the far north coast. We would pre-record these sort of 20-minute windows for each of those areas and they'd slot them into sort of a local news zone that was within the one-hour bulletin that they used to put to It was very clever the way that they used to do it. Mm. So there was a fair amount of work to do. But I, I missed being out on the road as much and then after that, I just kind of enjoyed being in the studio though. I, liked, I enjoyed the camaraderie with the crew and it was a double header. So I'd never actually read with somebody. I used to read with this guy called Ray Janine who had very good pronunciation, <laughs> much better than mine. And, and it was, it's, it's funny though, I look back at the old tapes of it and I was so posh when I was reading news because I was desperately trying to be posh because there was still that posh imperative in voiceovers in yeah. media. So there's also this thing where it's not conversational English. Mm. You know, news reading scripts aren't necessarily written in conversational English and you have to be clear and precise in the way you communicate it and the funniest thing for me doing a bit of radio now has been people ringing going oh you're really different on the radio than what you are on the news and you go well you try chortling your way through 50 dead in Iraq mate yeah. like you, can <laughs> totally. you know Osama yeah. bin Laden like you can't yeah. crack gags and you also you will say it's quite serious a lot of the time, you know. So you have to be really precise. But also you can't imbue it with what you think. Mm. And there are rare moments in news bulletins when you can. Like there are some stories that are probably fair game. Mm. Um, but they're usually the cat up a tree kind of stories. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you can afford to have yeah. an opinion. The dog on the surfboard. Yeah. <laughs> and it is a, it's a weird thing. Like my, I remember my nephew used to take the mickey out of me just saying, oh, Auntie Chris, Auntie Chris on the news. <laughs> and you go, oh. I know, it's a trust, you're a trust up turkey right i accept if you're a newsreader you're a trust up turkey right it's a trust up kind of job and i always say to, in defense of newsreaders you've got a phone voice haven't you 
hello, Rachel Corbett speaking, can I help you? You know, more, my mum's got a phone voice. Yeah. Hello, Maureen Bart here. What's well, like having a phone voice where yeah. you're, you're formal and you're polite and you're objective? Do you feel like there was a time when you felt, oh, I think I've found my voice now or is it? Yeah, I think it was after Peter Meekin screwed his face up at me and he was sort of a senior executive at Seven at the time and so he, he gets this look on his face, he squints his face up, he crosses his arm, he leans back in his chair and he goes... You read news like the Duchess who smelled a turd. <laughs> this is a true story. <laughs> I looked at him and said, do you have any constructive criticism, Peter? <laughs> and I went, what, what do you mean? He just said, oh, he said, just, just so stitched up. And this is when he first arrived at Channel 7 from Channel 9. I went, can't take that on board. And I walked outside, I was so miffed. Mm. I was so upset. I think I might have even had the odd tear. So I went back the next day and I said, listen, this turd smelling thing, right? <laughs> the technical term, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what do I do? He said, you just need to relax a bit. And then I had similar advice from Peter, which I'll always be grateful for because they rung me about going on Dancing with the Stars. And I just said, I was hosting all these political interview shows at seven at that point that nobody ever watched. And this is another harking back to being chucked in the deep end. They asked me to do it. And I said, that'll be like Gidget does politics. You can't be serious. Like... I, I spent a brief time in state politics at 2UE. I am not across federal politics, right? You've got to be in the house. Mm. No, no, you're going to host this show. So I found myself hosting this succession of Sunday morning political interview shows. And I remember saying to Peter, how do I go on this Dancing with the Stars show that I'd never actually seen? How do I go on that show and, and interview the Prime Minister, you know, about weapons of mass destruction? Because I think that's what I was doing at the time. He just said, oh, get over yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Tough love, I know. <laughs> and I just went... Okay, well, stuff you, I will. So I ended up doing it. And I think it sounds really weird, but doing a crazy reality TV show actually allowed me to loosen up a bit on TV because I kind of had this Pavlovian response in front of a camera where, oh, there's a camera. Hello, Chris Barth, here <laughs> with the news. You know, and, it's, and I still actually have it a bit now. I can feel it. But the radio thing is another process in that where y you, can, you can loosen up a little bit. And I think it's an ongoing process well you're allowed to have personality in something with dancing with the stars or on radio in fact in fact it's encouraged but in the news the idea is to sort of remove that from yourself so if that's what you've done it can be very hard I can imagine to sort of think oh bring my personality into this but I'm not allowed to editorialize or you know so it's it's kind of nice to get to the point where you feel a bit more comfortable with letting the audience see a bit more of who you are which then in turn I'm sure just makes you a little bit more relaxed but then part of you thinks why would they want to see it like, yeah of course <laughs> you know? and I've spent most of my professional life acting on a three second delay where I'll go I oh, can't say that, can't say that, I oh, can say this, uh, speak, you know. <laughs> just, yeah. And the crew, like you'll be able to say it with the crew and they'll go, oh God, can we do a show one day that's called Real TV? Oh yeah, <laughs> that's <laughs> it, where they just roll what happens in the ads. I get into so much trouble because oh, you end up with a really black sense of humour working do. in media. And I think, I think in a lot of ways it's a coping mechanism because even though you're not there for a lot of it, some of the volume of terrible stuff that you have to digest during a day really wears you down after a while. You know, I think... I remember being a TUE and, and this moment stuck with me for a long time where as a journalist you get these great front row seats to history but sometimes it's not that pleasant. And I remember it was New Year's Eve, I'd been out, well, everybody else was drunk, I'd been at the, in the rocks, there'd been a couple of stabbings, people were maggoted because it was New Year's Eve. I get in the TUE crew car, I'm driving on my own, I'm going, oh God, what a night that was. Anyway, so I hear on the scanners, possible gangland shooting at Warwick Farm. So, 
Off I go, out to Warwick Farm, even though I'm meant to be knocking off. I go out there, I get out of the car. There's me, there's the overnight crew from Channel 9, there's the overnight photographer from the telly. They're already there. I walk out. I'm going across the road. Policeman's going, stop, 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 stop. I'm going, oh, sorry, okay, why? And there's, it's outside a block of units. There's about, I don't know, 100 people looking on. She said, you got to go around the other way. And I went, oh, okay, why? And she just said, oh, look down. And I went, oh. Okay, <laughs> so we went back the other way. There were bits of this bloke on the road <laughs> that I hadn't seen because oh I was just making goodness. for the nearest police person. Walked around and went, okay, that's disgusting. So then wait patiently for the detectives to come and tell us what's going on. There's this headless body sitting oh on a wall. Goodness. Anyway, so we're standing near these people and by this stage it's like 2am, right? So we've gone through news, it's 2am. All these people out standing from the units nearby and they start going for me and the photographer and the camo. And there's only three of us there. And they start going, ah, oh, yes, a vultures, yes, are a pack of vultures. And went on and on and on. This went for easily half an hour. And I was just, and you know, and this is back in the 80s. And I think there's a much higher level of media hatred now than mm. what there was then. And I looked at these people and I looked back at the guys that I was with. I was so tired. I've been working really hard all night. I looked at them and I said, you know what? <laughs> I'm here doing my job. What's your excuse? Like, and the camo high five, the other camera <laughs> and went, yeah. <laughs> and they all just looked at me and I just said, come on, guys, you should be in bed. Yeah. Like, I'm thinking, I've just tiptoed through a bloke's brains. Do you think I want to be here? Like, as it turned out, it was a suicide. So we never reported it mm. because in those days you didn't report suicide and it wasn't a gangland shooting. But the because of the way the guy died, they just had the police had broadly assumed it was a gangland shooting, so I had to wait and the detectives came over and said, like, it's just nothing. But that moment has stuck with me and often when I've been in situations where you're reporting on something it's pretty grim and pretty ordinary and you have people pretending that you're enjoying it as somebody mm. in the media, I always think back to that day and think, I'm not a vulture. I'm here doing my job. I'm not enjoying it. And... In later years, you know, at various disasters and things that you invariably end up covering and sometimes for hours and hours and hours. And even if you're the anchor, you're watching all the pictures come through because you're talking to the pictures. After I'd had a little boy, I would often go home and just give him a big hug at the end of one of those things and, and just be really grateful and thankful that he was okay and that well, I was okay. And I don't know, there was something something restorative in, in doing that. Mm. And, and I can't tell you why, but it was just... You get home at the end of a day like that and go, oh, you know. There was a woman that I interviewed who was stuck under a desk in the Christchurch earthquake and with, like, no warning, they just said, there's a woman on the phone, we're going to put her through to you. Her name's Anne, she's under something. She's in there somewhere under something. Her son's rung and he wants you to talk to her to keep her going. And I'm going, I don't even know where this woman is. Are you serious? I said, we're putting her through now. That's the hardest interview I think I've ever done because I was sitting there thinking... Be responsible. She's stuck somewhere. She still needs her mobile phone battery to talk to her family, not you. Mm. You don't even know this woman from Adam. She was amazing. So we figured out through the course of the interview where she was and I could see rescuers on top of the building. It was the building that pancaked down. And I just told her what I could see because she was in the dark under a desk in some water and she was okay but really frightened. And I said to her, like at the end of the interview, I just said, look, and I'm, you know, I'm going to let you go because I don't want to use up all your phone battery and I'm sure you want to speak to your family, but thanks for talking to us. Anyway, the broadcast went on for another, I don't know, I think three hours. I'd lost track after a while. And, um, and I remember getting home that night thinking, I wonder how Anne is. I wonder 
if she's still under the desk. I wonder if she's in the water. I wonder if the phone's still going. I wonder if she's cold. I, I couldn't sleep. I, and then the next morning I, I put on the news straight away when I woke up and Anne had been found, but it wasn't my Anne. It was a different Anne. Mm. And so for the rest of the day I was going, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. Anyway, she, she was rescued. She oh got out God. and she was fine. And I remember calling her son back because I still had his number and I just said, listen, I'm not ringing for an interview. I'm not ringing for anything. I'm just ringing to say I'm so glad that your mum's okay and I'm so glad that she's out. And it's things like that that really stick with you. I have no idea why he rang media organisations to talk to his mum, but that's what he felt like he needed or maybe she wanted, I don't know. But that's it's funny that that sticks with me because I felt like it was – it was intrusive of me to be talking to her because you want to talk to your family with your mobile phone Mm. battery dying. But, you know, evidently it was something that they wanted to keep her going, to give her hope, whatever it did, I don't know. I still think of that as that literally the hardest interview I've ever done in my life. Like that was just mind-blowing that day. It's important, I think, to understand how big a deal it is to get because when you're sitting at the desk of a newsroom or you're on a radio station and something big happens and somebody's at the center of that and it happens all the time now the first thought is how do we get a witness how do we get someone right in the middle of it how do we get some someone who can paint the color and movement of what's going on there and I think sometimes people can be a bit numb to the fact that you're essentially encroaching on somebody's private and personal life and it's not just um, that they're talking to you and giving you the colour and movement like it's a real privilege and you know you should be so grateful for the fact that they've given you such great content but essentially it's because of their own difficulties disadvantage fear whatever it is and I think sometimes you can get people can get a bit numb to it because of the churn and burn of media because it's like oh we just got to get stories up we're just going to talk to that person that's seen a shooting we'll talk to that person who's cowered under the desk there we'll talk to this and those people go on and have their lives and and it's a huge moment in their life and I think it's important to have that sense of gosh this is massive yeah I think the two most important skills I think you need as a journalist are to listen mm. and really listen, not be looking at what the next question is you've got on your list. Yes. <laughs> listen to what the person says and think, okay, I really want to ask them that but I'm going to come back to that because they've just said this. Mm. So listening is, is such an important skill and empathy. Yeah. I think empathy is, is your friend. If you, if you have empathy with the person that you're interviewing, regardless of where they're from or what they do, if you can have some empathy – or, and whether it's empathy for them or empathy for their victims, if it's if it's some scumbag, or maybe you need empathy to understand their motivation, like why they would do something horrific like that. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like I just think empathy allows you a window to ask more questions. So I think it's really important. Do you enjoy working on radio now? You're doing evenings at the ABC. There's, is there something nice about uh, – I mean, I, I just think that one of the wonderful things about radio is it's just you people ringing in and just conversation you know and people also for the first time have you know they would have seen you on telly there's not a real link to somebody on the television I can't if I like what you do on Sunday night I can't call you and talk to you right now but if I like what you do on evenings at ABC I can call you I can talk to you do do you like that that medium well first of all please ring in and tell me I'm doing a good job (laughs) that'd be good Nailing it, Barthy. <laughs> Nailing it. You know what's really weird for me? Someone's going, oh, yeah, she started in radio. I'm going, no, no, no. I was a news reporter. It's very different mm. to being a broadcaster. And being a broadcaster is a skill, right? And it's, 
I've only been doing it for, you know, 10 months. And so. you've got to push the buttons at the ABC. Yeah, you've got to push give, the buttons yes. too. So I nearly died. I went, I have people for that. <laughs> what do you mean I've got to push the buttons? Went, it's just like driving a car. You'll be fine. I was going, oh, my God, it's like driving a car. It's terrifying I haven't got first. enough brain cells. You know, <laughs> you're expending all your brain power going, gee, what buttons? Yeah. Next, you know? And yeah. then... But in in the ABC's defence, it is a little bit like driving a car. Once you know what you're doing, mm. it's not so bad. So you over time expend less brain power on the buttons and the faders and the, all the other stuff that you're digesting while you're talking and, and then just talk. But I do love the intimacy of it. Like that's been a revelation to me because I'm not great on social media. I kind of – I'm the only person alive not on Facebook. And I prefer radio because you're actually having a chat, you mm. know, and I'm, I'm loving the intimacy of it. I'm really enjoying that side of it and being able to talk to people and also being able to do longer interviews. Yeah. You know, I'm not saying to people, listen, we've got a 15-second grab, so 25 words or less, could you please tell me the history of the world? You know, you're not doing stuff like that. You can actually have a, a longer, more expansive, more considered interview as if you were sitting next to somebody at a dinner party having a chat, you know, and being really interested in what they're doing. And so I'm loving that side of it. It's mm. just, it's been a real revelation for me. I just feel, re-energised is the wrong word because I, I, I like working in TV too. But it's just, I was lucky. And again, it's luck. They rang me and said, hey, what do you think about like filling in on the radio like for us? Like we think you'd be okay at radio. Do you want to give it a go? And I go, oh, yeah, okay, why not? It's part of this, you know, freelance thing. Like, mm. Go and do it, why not? And um, I was terrified to start with, absolutely. Because it's there's this thing like, you know, I, I've been working in media for nearly 30 years, but it goes back to what I said before. You, you're always learning and people think if you've been doing it for that long, then you're a fully firm media person and therefore you can write a brilliant print article or you can work on radio, you can work in television. They're all very different disciplines and there's bits of it that cross over. But, but I'm learning, I feel like I'm learning a new skill set working in radio and I'm really enjoying it. I just wish the phone lines were a bit better. Like sometimes it's so bad. And you get someone who's really good. You can't talk to them because the phone line's crap. Like, hello, NBN. Do you know what I mean? It's just so soul-destroying because yeah. you're going, oh, oh, oh. Yeah, there's nothing worse when you've got a good story and you can hear the brand. You're like, oh, oh, oh. Yeah. I, I had to let a guy go last week because he just he couldn't understand what he was saying. He sounded mm. like Darth Vader. I was just going, I was willing it to get better and the producer's looking at me through the window and I'm looking at her and she's just giving me the cut it off signal yep. and I'm just going. got to let it go. I said, I'm really sorry, Graham. We're going to have to get you on a better spot. But it's just, yeah, so annoying. Have, are you heavily involved in the producing and topics? Oh, we have a vast staff of two, me, <laughs> <laughs> punching out three hours of content. <laughs> oh, we get half a producer occasionally. <laughs> yep. So, yeah, one and a half producers and me. So, yeah, yeah when there's three hours of content, yeah. We, That's good we, though. I mean, because yeah. then you're across everything, you yeah, know. Yeah, well, I kind of... Between the one and a half of us, like we, mm. we kind of do it all. So I've really enjoyed that side of it too because there's so much demarcation in telly. Totally, yeah. Um, I've, I feel like there's like 700 extra things I have I want to ask you but we're like running out of time. Um, so I'm going to ask you what you think the best and the worst thing about the industry is. <sighs> the best thing about the industry is you have an access all areas pass an opportunity to see moments in history to cover amazing things, to go to incredible places, to be allowed into people's private lives. That's a pretty amazing thing. And I, I love that about what I do for a living. The worst thing about it is the higher up 
the food chain you go, the worse the politics gets. Mm. And I wish I could say that wasn't a factor, but I hate that side of it. Mm. I, I, I hate that some people would rather play politics than just do the work. It does my head in. But you know what? I, I think that is in a lot of workplaces. I don't think it's just media. But, yeah, I think that's the worst side of it. Final five questions. We are coming to the end. Your biggest regret? Oh, God. There's, I, do, I do Catholic guilt better than any non-Catholic <laughs> in the world. I have so many. I don't know where to start. I wish I could say I had none. I, I do. I, I don't know. I think I said once in a, in a magazine article was that I went back to work too soon. But I, I didn't actually have a choice. I was the breadwinner. I kind of had to go back to work. But, you know, magazines always portray you as being the wildly ambitious career woman. <laughs> <laughs> You're so uh, evil, Barbie. You, know, you just go, <laughs> uh-huh. And then, you know, what recourse do you have? You can't yeah. go, actually, you know, I don't want to rub my partner's nose in the fact that he wasn't earning any money and I had to go back to work. So I'm not going to say anything. I'm not yeah. going to dignify that with a response. So if I'd had my druthers, I probably wouldn't have gone back to work so fast after having Dars. <sighs> God, how many other regrets? <laughs> There's a bazillion. Like you're going, you're going to run out of time. You know, I'm really sorry to the boyfriend I had. You know, <laughs> he was such a nice guy. I treated him so badly. Oh, we all got those. <laughs> you know, come on, don't you ever look back and go, God, I was a cow. <laughs> and he was such a nice man. Um, yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. Stuff like that. You know, right. but work-wise. Um, like I managed to beat myself up about something I do on air almost every day. Mm. Like I just sit there and just go, why did that come out of your mouth? You know, it just... Yeah, but nobody but yeah, ever cares as what do much you do? as you do. Yeah, yeah. you've got to just move on. My producer at the ABC is um, a big fan of Let It Go. And uh, often when things go wrong, she'll go, let it go, <laughs> let it go. I'm going, okay, enough, shut down Elsa. Like, enough. Um, your dream gig. My dream gig, I would love to host my own bird nerd show going around to the most beautiful parts of Australia and introducing people to bird watching, doing a celebrity interview, taking people like Carl Sanderland's bird watching, people who will lead, although he looks like he might be a bird watcher, but, you know, take, taking people bird watching and introducing them to a really super nerdy thing that is absolutely fabulous and some of the great characters behind bird watching. I would love to do a series in regional Australia, if I could get back to regional Australia and do uh, this series about the great characters in regional Australia and introduce people to some of the beautiful parts of the country that we all fantasise about going on on that round yeah. Australia road trip but never get to. Look, it's already been done before. That's what every media executive would be saying. Oh, Barthi, it's already been done before. But you not know, the bird watching thing. I mean, Bill no, Oddie's done a bit of stuff, hasn't he? That's always my yeah. argument, Rach. Yeah. And they always go, oh, it's been done before. I'm does painting and doing interviews. You can't watch <laughs> birds and do interviews. And I went, no, <laughs> no, but it's a tourism bonanza. Oh, Hello, man. Tourism Australia. You should get on board. That's cra- the what are, what are they, Twitches? Is that what Twitches, the Twitches, yeah. Twitches, yeah. Get all twitchy. The Twitches are full on. And the list, are you are you into it? Like you've got the list of no, birds that you I tick off? Do, I'm not no, I don't do the list thing. But it was your son that got you into it, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, he's a mad bird watcher. He's been obsessed with birds since he was sort of oh, back amazing. in the old McPherson stroller that I thought I was going to run in and never did because <laughs> anyhow, I was pointed at the sky in one of those things. So that's the only, he, the only choice he had was to look at the sky. So he got into birds. He's wow. still obsessed. He's 16. He still loves them. 
and he's infected every adult around him. You've got to make the you've got to make the pastime cool because it's got a bit of a bad rap. The old bird watching, it's so cool. But you've got to make you've maybe we need to get you to do that just to make because there it's would be so no cool. shortage. I feel like bird watchers are those people that don't admit they're bird watchers, but there are so flipping many. Yeah, so many. Yeah, and I kept saying to to get people switched onto it with their kids because it gets yeah. kids off screens. Mm. Although there are apps that you can use to help you identify birds, but it's like Pokemon Go with more characters. <laughs> you know, there are so many <laughs> birds to find. In Australia and, and it's just it's just brilliant so yeah that or either that or I do the Graham Norton show but like, we haven't really got the population base to do that it's not like Hillary Clinton's just going to pop by yeah, for an interview you kind of, he can do that out of London because everyone's true. through there <laughs> I don't know that that would get sustained in Australia and I would think I'd have trouble persuading media executives that I was the next Graham Norton oh, I yeah. think I'd be bloody good at it yeah I'd I think it. you'd be great at it <laughs> that mixed with bird watching mixed with regional Australia we could just make like a, some kind of mashed up Chris Bath spectacular yeah although I think I've got to work my resting bitch face this is a terrible <laughs> photo of me the other day in the paper i looked at it and i went she's it's a you know when you get older you just look cranky yeah. even if you're not but you i mean just, yeah. why why do we have to put effort in when we're resting you know why do i have to oh. make my face look approachable when i'm resting i'm not doing anything i'm just resting just let it be how it is if it's bitch face it's bitch face a uh, big idea that you've got yet that you've yet to get up maybe the bird, bird watching, watching show <laughs> i think we've covered bird that one show. um if you weren't doing this as in working in show business what would you be doing think I would go back to that paleontology dream or maybe try and be some sort of ecologist. I don't know. I think I think Australia's endangered species need help. They need me to help them. They need you. <laughs> you. I don't know. Yeah, maybe I'd do something like that if I had my druthers. I don't know. And then, I mean, that's sort of part of me fantasises and thinks, well, you know, you're such an actor. You've been such an actor over the years, really, being a newsreader, because I'm really not that trussed up. Maybe I should be an actress. But then I think, nah, <laughs> you're not allowed to get old, you know, you're not allowed to get fat. You'd it's be just, great. I'd struggle with that. You'd be great at that. And finally, your advice to people wanting to get into the business. Oh, gosh. I've spoken at so many schools to kids about this. There's so many things I want to say to them. Don't oh. do it. <laughs> How honest do you want me to be? Get um, out. If you want to get into the business, you have to be engaged with the world. You have to be curious about the world. You actually need to know how to construct a sentence that's kind of handy. And you have to listen and be interested, genuinely interested in other people and their stories. If you've got none of that, become an accountant. Like, seriously, it's not for you. But it's not about being Britney Spears media. There's a lot of, a lot of hard work that goes into being Britney Spears on TV – uh, unless you've got family connections, which I never did. Um, and you have to want to put in the work. You've got to work really hard, I think, to, to work in media. So you've got to have a work ethic, you've got to listen and you've got to be interested and engaged with the world. And if you're none of those things, forget it. Barthy, we have to get into makeup or we're going to be in all sorts of trouble. Thank you so much for sitting with us. I know, right? We've, oh just, talked, we've just talked for a really long time. Oh, my God. Time. The viewers are going to be in a lot of trouble. I know we got to get in there if immediately. I get in there without makeup. Oh my god! No, we got plenty of we time. Have. We're all right. Thank you so much for joining. You me. got plenty of time. I haven't. Rome wasn't built in a day, sister. We need to get the trail out. <laughs> Slap it on. Thanks, Barthy. Thanks, mate. Thanks for listening to You've Got to Start Somewhere. Thanks. To subscribe to the podcast, check out other episodes, and keep up to date, head to you've got to start Thanks so much for listening to my chat with Chris Bath. Oh, I love that lady. I just want to squeeze her. She's so delightful and I love that she loves bird watching. Oh.
So cool. Next week on the show, I am going to be chatting with Joe Hildebrand, one of the hosts of Studio 10, a journalist and editor at large at news.com.au. We work out what that means in the interview. And I also talked to him about the fact that he didn't always want to be a journalist. In fact, when he was little, he had very lofty dreams. I wanted to be a rock and roll star. And I am still a a very talented singer-songwriter. Are you lying to my face? No, no. I'm genuinely incredibly talented. But um, I was better at the piano than I was at the guitar. And that's obviously a disadvantage. I think in in musical terms, it probably qualifies as a disability. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Elton John and Billy Joel have done all right with it. And those spots are already taken. (laughs) How How many others... Like yeah. in, the, in the whole history of humankind, mm. the UK has thrown up one, the US has thrown up one, and what am I going to be? The next Paul Grabowski? <laughs> I mean, so Richard, who's the Richard? Which one's the one on the keys? Richard Clayderman or Richard? Yeah, Richard yeah. Clayderman. That's right. <laughs> yeah. The fact that you couldn't remember his name tells you everything you need to know. I hope you'll join me for that chat. If you are enjoying these interviews, please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts and share the show with your friends. The more, the merrier. I'll see you next week on You've Got to Start Somewhere. 